Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to the show, and I've got to say I'm looking forward to this one, Mikey, because you've promised to get a bit explosive, honest. <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah, and in fact, you're not just delving into history this week, Mikey, are you? It's got some geography in there, dare I say geology, because this week you're going to go volcanic. Yes, mate, I'm going volcanic, and let's, let's be honest, right at the start, geography you know is one of my weak points, <laughs> and geology I'm even worse at, but I have been fascinated by volcanoes since I was a young boy. Mm. Well, ever since that episode of the Brady Bunch when Marsha's girls' party got ruined by the boys' volcano. <laughs> but so I thought we'd look at volcanoes and their role in history. Mm. So why don't we start with the big historical one? The most famous... If I was to say to you, history volcanoes, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's got to be Vesuvius. It's got to be Vesuvius and the town of Pompeii. Well, Pompeii's history is a little more convoluted than I'd first imagined. First settled by Greek colonists around about the 9th century BCE. That's right. A lot of Italy at the time, Mikey, was actually colonies for the big Greek city-states, and Pompeii indeed was one of them. But by the 5th century, it's become part of the Etruscan world. Yeah, but that only lasts about 50 years. Now, I'm going to need your help there, because round about the 5th century uh, BCE, the Semnites come in. Now, the Semnites, explain this to me. They're Italian, but they're not Roman. No, that's right, because as I said, yeah, Italy's a real patchwork at this stage. No one's really in control of the whole peninsula. And these Samnites, they're very successful in the Naples Bay area, all the way from Herculaneum through to Sorrento. And I think the reason why they're so successful is because agriculturally, of course, yeah, they've got the rich volcanic soil that's very fertile. Yes, which should have been a red flag at the start. (laughs) But anyway, like most parts of Italy, it does eventually become part of the Roman world and stays that way in the 3rd and 2nd and 1st centuries BC until suddenly it finds itself on the wrong side of the social war in 91 BCE. And it's during that year that it gets besieged by Sulla. Now, we haven't got time to talk about Sulla in this episode, Mikey, but I just do want to point out here that I think that Sulla's been a bit harshly treated by history and that he actually might not be the great howler that everyone thinks he is. So you're saying the first dictator of Rome has been roughly treated. I think there's a whole episode of that. But you're right, mate. From then on, Pompeii flourishes. As we said before, it's got the very fertile soil because mm. of its location, there's maritime trade, yes. it's cultured, it's educated, it's beautiful. It's considered to be one of the golden spots of the Roman Empire. It's got baths, private and public spaces, art and statues. And it stays that way right through into the common era. Yes, mate. But unfortunately, things go awry. What we often forget is there was an earthquake in 62 CE, before the eruption. Now, this devastates the town. It takes them ages to rebuild, and in fact, the rebuilding of Pompeii is almost complete until the 24th of August, 79 CE, at 1pm, when the ash hits the fan. Now, folks, you might be asking, how do we know it was exactly 1pm? Bang on the dot. Well, we know this because there was someone quite famous there. 
That's right, Pliny the Younger, and he writes two letters to Tacitus. He's there visiting his uncle, Pliny the Elder. It gets confusing. And that's why I was so excited that you picked this episode, Mikey, because for once we actually have a genuine account to tell us blow by blow what happens during the eruption. And then, of course, in many ways, it's a complete contrast to what we had last week. In last week's episode, when we were talking about the First Nations of North America with the blurred myths and legends and stories embedded in popular culture. Whereas with Vesuvius and Pompeii, we've got a first-hand eyewitness account from a genuine historian. And I think it's fair to say, Mikey, that's one of the reasons why the Roman Empire is set on such a historical pedestal, if you like, as one of the great epochs, because it's got so many standard-setting accounts, so many groundbreaking historians. Now, as you know, I do sometimes say that the Roman Empire has been overhyped and its historians perhaps over-revered. I mean, sometimes they're just straight-out propagandists. That's true, but by the same token, we have to accept its rich historical traditions, which in many ways do set that gold standard which sets the Roman Empire and its history apart. Mate, you're dead right there. In fact, there are so many accounts. We're not going to go through the blow-by-blow of what happened to Pompeii on the day. That's been well recorded. Mm. I want to look at what happens afterwards. Now, the Emperor Titus, now the first thing he does is he he sends two ex-consuls there to basically start a, a relief effort. And they start salvaging, but of course, whenever there's salvage, there's looters. Yes. Because not everything's completely buried. There's still roofs and stuff sticking out. So the looters, are, you know, they're digging down, they're taking out the marble, the statue, you know, basically anything that's worth anything. Yes. But once all that's done and dusted, the whole city, look, in many ways, it's just forgotten and allowed to fade away. And then it's well and truly buried. There are further eruptions in 471, 473 and 512 CE to the point where it's well covered and, quite frankly, well forgotten. But here's the thing. Even though they don't know what's under the ground, they Mm. still refer to this area as La Civita. Ah, the city. They don't know why. Then in 1592, this is architect, a guy called Domenico Fontana. Now, he's digging underground in the area. He's trying to find a water source for for some mills for the nearby town of Torre Anuziata. He comes across some walls which are definitely Roman and and definitely decorated. Mm. And in 1698, the mystery deepens. Mm. A guy called Francesco Piccetti, he comes across an old wall with with an inscription, Town Councillor of Pompeii, but he thinks it's actually a misspelling of Pompey. Ah, right, yes, of course, Pompey the Great and his son Sextus Pompey, who had their bases down in that area. Exactly, And, and this debate goes on between scholars for ages. But then it all changes in 1738. Now, the king of Naples, Charles of Bourbon, he's building a new palace, or actually a summer palace in the area, and his workers start digging up artefacts. And he loves these artefacts. Remember, it's that whole thing like you know, showing off antiquities and showing off great works of art. Mm. Then he remembers some stories about Pompeii or La Civita. Mm. So what Charles does is he sends some archaeologists over mm. there to do some serious digging. Now, on August the 20th in 1763... They find an arch with the inscription. Actually, I'm going to show you. Okay, you read. You read the Latin. Oh yeah. Okay. So yes, Rei Publica Pompeianorum, which means basically Commonwealth of the Pompeians. So the identification is now certain. Right. It is Pompeii. Then after this, after Charles has got all the good stuff he can get out of it, mm. it sort of fades away again. It's basically just amateurs. 
until the 1860s. Right. When a guy called Giuseppe Fiorelli. Oh, yes, him. Yeah, he's the head architect and he's well funded. But this is why he's my hero. Because mm. he finds space between petrified mud and ash surrounding the skeletons. Yes. And he has the ingenious idea to fill the void with plaster of Paris. Ah, yes, of course. So when we think of Pompeii, we think of those haunting sculptures. And Giuseppe Fiorelli is the guy who came up with the idea to put the plaster of Paris in Um, and create these incredibly moving things we still see today. Unfortunately, many of them were damaged during bombing in World War II. But you'll be pleased to know they have since been restored and they very much are there to be seen today. But I know, Mikey, yeah. that's not your real reason for liking Pompeii. No, mate. In fact, my favourite thing about what's been found in Pompeii, I mean, yes, there's the great heart and the, the moving plaster sculptures of the people who've died. But let's be honest, my favourite thing is the dirty graffiti. <laughs> and let's face it, well, the word graffiti comes from the Roman, you know, to scratch. And that's the thing, when the ash fell and so much was preserved... A lot of graffiti was preserved in both Pompeii and Herculaneum. That's right. You know, we get graffiti all over the Roman Empire, don't we? But particularly in Pompeii, the amount of graffiti that we've found is left all over the place. And I know when I was there, I quite liked a few of them too. So you kick off, Mikey, and I'll see if I can match you. Okay, this is from the Inn of the Mule Driver. So, yeah, it was an inn set up for mule drivers. And someone had scratched into the wall, We have peed in our beds, host. I admit we shouldn't have done this. If you ask why... There was no potty. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, a lot of them do take a bit of a, a dirty turn, don't oh, they? Yeah. You know, I know in the tavern of Vernkundus, there was that one about showing us your hairy privates. I won't mm. go into that. No. But I do like the one in the other bar, Athicus's bar, which says that I shagged the barmaid. Actually, mate, bragging seems to be what a lot of this graffiti is about. This is from the Gladiator Barracks. Celadus the Thracian makes the girls moan. Yeah, really, mate? And another one from the barracks as well. Floronius, privileged soldier of the 7th Legion, was here. The women did not know of his presence. Only six women came to know him. Too few for such a stallion. Yeah, I think old uh, Floronius has got some issues there. But it's not just men writing, Mikey, is it? In the Vico Dugli Schianziati, you've got... Cruel Alugus, why do you not love me? Oh, sweet. And some of it's just plain boys. <laughs> yeah, I remember on Mercury Street, something like Publius Comicus Restutus stood here. With his brother. <laughs> but some of my favourite stuff comes from around the Basilica, and they're basically just insults. There's one, um, Philorus is a eunuch, mm-hmm. and then Epaphra, you are bald, <laughs> and then Epaphra cops it again. Epaphra is not good at ball games, so poor old Epaphra, he was bald and he wasn't good at soccer. <laughs> but, mate, there's one which is really sweet. I, I just want to leave you with this one. This comes from the Vico di Amuccia. Vibius Restitutus slept here alone, and missed his darling Urbana. All right, so we've had the big one in Vesuvius. Now we're going to move slightly further north. We're still in Europe and we're still on volcanoes. In fact, in many ways, we're talking about Europe's volcano capital, the island of Iceland. But this time, it's not so much the lava and the ash, it's rather the fallout, the toxic gases and the pollution in terms of consequences, Mikey, you're saying this next eruption on Iceland, it has a much bigger impact than Vesuvius and Pompeii could ever dream of. Mate, OK, if I was to ask you, what were the causes of the French Revolution? Mm. Well, yeah, there's intellectual, uh, philosophical reasons. Yeah, of course, the Age of Enlightenment with Locke and Rousseau. 
And you also, you know, you got Voltaire's um, Treatise for Toleration. He's 1730 play Brutus. And at the same time, of course, you've got to talk about the more prosaic reasons, haven't you? Like, you know, the rising middle classes and how they were unrepresented in government. And also to the cost of losing the Seven Years' War. And also to the one the Americans don't like to talk about, how the French crown had backed the American Revolution. And after the War of Independence, the Americans reneged on the debt. <laughs> But probably the most infamous is the cost of bread and the bread riots, the march on Versailles. Sure. Now, you have to remember, at the start of the French Revolution, if you're a working-class family in France, you are spending 90% of your income on bread. 90%? That's incredible. I know, mate, but it's true. But what's all this got to do with volcanoes? You know, France's volcanoes have been dormant for centuries. That's right, mate. And just like you said at the beginning, that's why we're now going to Iceland. Mm. And it's not simply just one eruption. There's a period of time between June the 8th, 1783, and February 1884. The Lockheed Volcano System. Now, it spewed 8 million tonnes of fluorine wow. and 120 million tonnes of sulphur dioxide into wow. the atmosphere. It created havoc in the Northern Hemisphere. From the USA to Europe to Japan, there were droughts, there were freezing winters, there were floods. And of course, Iceland copped it the most. And it was quite violent in Iceland. In fact, a bit like Pliny, we have a guy who was there, a religious man, an amateur geologist, a guy called John Stingrimson. Mm. This is his quote. First the ground swelled up with tremendous howling, then suddenly a cry shattered it into pieces and exposed the earth's guts like an animal tearing apart its prey. How terrible it was to see such signs of an angry God. It was time to confess to the Lord. Now, whenever the words confess to the Lord come up, (laughs) you know you're in trouble. In fact, in Iceland, this period of time goes down in history, and please excuse my Icelandic here, (laughs) as the... Muharidian, right. or the mist hardships. Okay. Now, 25% of the Icelandic population perished, some due to the eruption, but mostly just due to famine, because mm. the fluorine got into the grass and poisoned it. It killed 80% of the sheep, Wow. half of the cattle and horses. Mm. In fact, a Swedish Icelandic academic, a guy called Professor Gunnar Carlsen, said it had such a profound psychological effect on Icelanders and their culture, and this is a quote, the Icelanders stopped dancing, and unlike the Norwegians and Faroe Islanders, we lost the old dancers. A mm. period of time where there was no joy, no celebration, and it wasn't just in Iceland. So I said, this spread all over the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. In England, they reckon the death toll reached about 23,000 people. This is a, a combination of the toxic sulfur dioxide and, I hate to say it, mate, the English death. English weather. The yeah. English death weather. In fact, fogs were really hard for years afterwards. They were so thick they hampered navigation. There was extreme weather all over the world, particularly in in the north. There were hailstorms in Europe, so vicious they killed cattle. And fields were just devastated. An English naturalist at the time, a guy called Gilbert White, wrote this. Amazing and portentous peculiar haze, unlike anything known within the memory of man. At the same time, the heat was so intense that butcher's meat could hardly be eaten on the day after it was slaughtered. Flies swarmed, the Mm. country people began to look with a superstitious awe at the red luring aspect of the sun. Wow. Over in the Americas, Benjamin Franklin actually wrote of a constant fog all over Europe and a great part of North America. It also broke the Asian monsoon cycle, which caused famine in Egypt. 
But the main impact you want to talk about is in France. Yes, mate. It impacts France particularly, not just agriculturally, but politically. Now, just because you've got environmental disaster out on the outskirts of Europe, you wouldn't automatically think you'd get revolution breaking out in Europe's heart in France. But I suppose in many ways it shouldn't actually come as such a surprise. Because you have to remember, mate, by the late 18th century, there'd been a really steep rise in the population in France. But unfortunately, that hadn't been matched by France's agricultural sector. You see, unlike in England, France is still using the outdated methods and the inefficient estate management of the Middle Ages. So it's already struggling to feed its people. And it's on top of this that the lucky eruptions have such a profound effect. Yes, of course, because these are the prime years leading up to the French Revolution. Yes, mate. Look, the eruptions might have been in 83, 84, but the after effects go on for years. In 1788, the wheat harvest fails. Mm-hmm. And in the winter of 88, 89, there's an exceptionally harsh winter to the point where the rivers freeze. Ah, oh, yes. I remember reading about this because the small amount of grain that was produced that year, they couldn't even get it to Paris because the rivers were frozen. And the other thing too is you have to remember, Paris by this stage is a city of 600,000 people, a lot of whom are poor peasants who've left the devastation on the land once again caused by these Icelandic eruptions. So now, these fresh arrivals in Paris, they're not just unemployed, they're starving. Well, that's it, Mike. You've got to remember, any rise in the price of bread yeah, is always going to be calamitous. But this time, the result is going to be not just protests, not just riots. This time, it's going to cause a full-blown revolution. That's right, mate. Now you haven't just got an intellectual bourgeoisie pushing for political change, you've got the bodies on the ground to force change through. And make no mistake, the rioters amongst the common people here are key because, let's be honest, not many people who stormed the Bastille had read Voltaire. All right, so we've looked at the eruption that was Vesuvius. We've seen how the fallout of volcanoes has produced revolution in Europe. And it's fair to say that often during history, it's actually been the ash fallout more than the lava that's caused so many problems. Problems sometimes thousands of kilometres away. You know, today we might complain about ash clouds cancelling our holiday in Bali. But back over the centuries, things have been much more serious. In fact, most scientific experts believe that volcanic activity in the South Pacific towards the end of the 13th century, that's what caused the Little Ice Age in Europe. I'm glad you got us to the South Pacific, Paulie, because we can't do an episode on volcanoes without mentioning Krakatoa. Of course. Now, east of Java. Look, I'm just going to get this off my chest before we get into the serious stuff. When I was a kid, if one of my uncles heard a loud noise, particularly a loud piece of flatulence, (laughs) they would always shout out, Krakatoa, east of Java. Oh, yes, Krakatoa, that famous Indonesian volcano, as you say, in between Java and Sumatra. Now, Matt, the first inkling of this comes in May in 1883, when the captain of a German warship sailing the, the Sunda Straits between Java and Sumatra noticed a column of smoke and ash almost two kilometres tall. Two kilometres? Over the next few months, other ships mention rumblings coming from the uninhabited island with the Indonesian name of Krakatoa. Then on August 24th, 1883, things become worse. And on the 25th, the eruption begins. Ships noticed a a black cloud of smoke kilometres into the atmosphere and pumice and ash landing on the ship's decks. Mm. By the 27th, it was apocalyptic. There were four enormous explosions. The third being the largest. To this day, that third eruption at two minutes past ten in the morning is the loudest noise ever recorded in human history. Sailors on British warships 65 kilometres away had their eardrums ruptured. 
in Batavia, modern-day Jakarta, a gasworks barometer spiked with the equivalent of 172 decibels. That's the sound of a jet engine taking off if you're next to it, and that's 100 kilometres away. Ouch. In Perth which was 3,000 kilometres away, people thought it was distant thunder. Mm. And even in Mauritius, which is 4,800 kilometres away, the people there thought it was the sound of cannon fire. 10% of the Earth's population heard the explosion. 10%. And the sound wave travelled the globe seven times. (laughs) That really is a big explosion. Mate, it was equal to 200 megatons of TNT. Now, that's four times more powerful than the Tsar bomb which is the most destructive thermonuclear device ever detonated. It was big enough to throw 21 cubic kilometres of rock fragments into the air. Pumice rained down all over the place, and the whole region was plunged into two and a half days of darkness, and the island of Krakatoa entirely disappeared. Ah. Now, the island of Krakatoa was uninhabited. Thank goodness for that. So no one was killed by the lava. But then there was the ash and the pumice. Now, first off, the ash. It killed a 1,000 people in what is now Katabung in Lampong Province, Sumatra. And on the island of Sebesi nearby, there were no survivors from its population of around about 3,000 people at the time. But it was the tsunamis that caused the most deaths. Mm. Each explosion set off a tsunami. But the major two minutes past 10 explosion also caused much of the island to collapse, and it generated a 37-metre-tall tsunami. 37? Mate, it washed away 165 coastal villages in Java and Sumatra, and it caused an estimated 36,000 fatalities. Here's the thing, and this is going to bring us up to the present day. There were further eruptions in 1927, which caused the creation of a small island, Anak Krakatoa, child of Krakatoa, Mm. it starts under the sea, but by 1930, it's emerging from the ocean. Mm. And things come down for just over 80 years. But you'll remember this in 2018, Paulie. There was another eruption that caused the collapse of the southwest flank of this smaller Mm. island. That had a resulting tsunami on the 31st of December 2018 that killed 437 and injured 14,509 people all along the coastlines of both Sumatra and Java. So I'm sad to say, Paulie, volcanoes have and will always be as deadly as they are exciting. Yes, indeed. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Michael, you've got a bunch of oddballs from history who are still plaguing us now. And Paul, as usual, you can blame the Victorians. (laughs) 